0: Hi folks, before we start this week's episode, I wanted to ask for your support for Design Museum Everywhere. Just like this podcast, so much of what Design Museum Everywhere puts out in the world is free and accessible to everyone. We're all about bringing design impact everywhere. Whether it's our virtual events, like our recent Design Museum Live on data visualization and COVID-19, or our We Design online exhibition, which features designers of color across every design field, or the hundreds of articles on design on our website and our magazine. One of my personal favorites, design thinking for rocket scientists. Pretty cool. There's just so much Design Museum content to enjoy. It's all made possible by people like you, whose financial support drives our ability to bring the transformative power of design everywhere. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider making a year-end gift to support us. Your donation is tax-deductible and means a lot to us. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on the link at the top of the page. Thanks, and now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Design Is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. It's Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of the Design Museum. Thanks for being here and welcome to December. Today, we're gonna chat about what goes into our buildings and spaces. The materials our spaces are constructed out of, the products that go in them, they all affect our health and well-being, and they have a huge impact on our environment. What if we could build buildings that are healthy for people and the planet? That's what we'll discuss today with our guests. We have an awesome guest co-host joining us. Ren DeCherney is business development manager at the International Living Future Institute and is gonna share their Declare 2.0 program, which is basically a nutrition style label for products, which I can't wait to learn more about. And then Ren and I will interview Lana Rarick. She's an architect and associate principal at ZGF Architects in Portland, Oregon. Lana specializes in material selection and transparency and we'll learn how she utilizes specifications like Declare to design with sustainable ability in mind. Plus, as always, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. Before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. I'm thrilled to announce that we are about to publish our next book. You all might recall from a previous episode that we produced and toured an exhibition called Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics. Well, we've just about completed a 200-page, exhibition catalog, and print resource containing all of our research and content from the exhibition. So it's basically like bringing the exhibition home. This book features the past, present, and future of prosthetic design. It has a 500-year history of prosthetics, along with stories of people living with limb loss and limb difference, and the prosthetic devices they utilize. It also has seven guest essays from thought leaders in the field. It's an amazing time to explore prosthetics and think about there's so much innovation from 3D printing and sensors, robotics, and, and much more. I know you're gonna love this book. You can pre-order it now on our website, and $5 from every book sold during the pre-order period goes to support the Amputee Coalition, a nonprofit advocacy group for people living with limb loss. So if you're interested in pre-ordering the book, visit our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org, and click on the link on the homepage. And one last mention for the Workplace Innovation Summit happening next week, there's still time to get your ticket. It's a five-day summit on the future of how and where we work. And with so much change happening around how and where we work, it's a critical time to learn from experts and become experts ourselves to create workspaces and workplace strategies that fit our organizations and our teams. We have such a good group of presenters, speakers, workshop facilitators. It's going to be an amazing five days, December 7th through 11th. Your ticket allows you to hop into as many sessions as you want. So check out the program lineup and get your ticket at WorkplaceInnovationSummit.org. And with that, on to this week's topic. Buildings have a huge impact on the environment. Buildings take up around 35% of our resources, 40% of our energy use. They utilize 12% of the world's drinkable water, which I can't believe, and they're responsible for almost 40% of global carbon emissions. And then there's the effect of product and material choices on human health, happiness, and productivity. It's all connected. And it is possible to build buildings and spaces that both protect our environment and support our well-being. And part of that is just knowing what's in these products and where they come from and where they go when they're disposed of. I'm excited to get into it with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Rendacherney. DeCherney. She's the business development manager at the International Living Future Institute, a global network dedicated to creating a healthy future for all. She's very focused on the Institute's Declare program, which was launched in 2012 and has positively changed the materials marketplace by offering simplicity and ease of use to both manufacturers and specifiers to facilitate the exchange of information and enable a future of healthier buildings. Ren has a background interior design, and so she pulls this all together nicely for healthy and sustainable spaces. Ren, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I wonder if we could start just you telling us more about the International Living Future Institute. What is a living future?
1: The International Living Future Institute is based in Seattle, but it's really a global network of folks who are looking to create a world that is not just sustainable, but healthy for the environment and for the people. And so it is really here to catalyze how we think about things, not just products, but buildings and our communities. So it really is this global network of folks that are looking to revolutionize how we think about our world and then how we design it. And it's really not just how can we do less bad, but how can we make something good? And what does good look like? Their official mission statement is to catalyze the transformation toward communities that are socially just, culturally rich. Rich and ecologically restorative. So that's a lot.
0: Yes, that's a big mission.
1: Whew. It's a big mission. But it's really about like, let's re-envision what the future looks like and how we build things that do good rather than just mitigating harm.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I'm living in this future, what is my life like?
1: It's good. It's a good future. <laughs> There's more voices at the table to help make decisions so that the impact of our choices is less harmful to the folks that it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're looking at, you know, communities of color that are traditionally very affected negatively by the building environment or Mm -hmm. I mean, every system in general. Yes. But buildings, especially and how we build those communities, it's a place where the products that we make and we surround ourselves with are healthy for not just the occupants, the end users, but the folks that create them. Our framework is to think about things rather than In the risk assessment, but more of a hazard assessment. So if a risk assessment, you're just worried about like, can a little kid lick this when it's (laughs) been installed? You're just talking about a risk. And maybe the answer is yes, the little kid can lick it and it's fine. But it was extremely toxic to the folks who created it and the folks who were around it when it was made. So we're really looking at is it healthy from start to finish, Hmm. because that's how you build a sustainable future: is by having things that are built in a way that keeps those communities in mind, Mm -hmm. the workers in mind, and the end occupants, and then what you can do with it afterwards. So it's sort of like many birds with one stone.
0: Can you? I, I know I threw out some some percentages there in the beginning, but can you help characterize the problem if we focus on buildings for a second? The problem with traditional buildings and the and the effects on the environment and negative impacts on people.
1: Yeah. So the stats you quoted were right. I, know you I said nailed that. it. You nailed did it. it. Yep. <laughs> so it a lot of it comes down to sort of traditional um, building practices. And by traditional, I mean, um, in the sort of modern sense of the way, not sure. like
0: Ramder. Artisans. Within. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It has to do with sort of our industrial complex of how we build buildings these days. And there's mm. an incredible amount of waste that is generated. And so, not only is the building itself um, a lot of times not energy efficient, the materials that are in it are kind of crappy. And they, you know, use a lot of carbon to create. But just getting that building created creates a ton of carbon emissions. It creates a ton of just landfill waste. I work with a lot of companies that are reclaiming construction waste Mm. because that's a huge portion of the building is the waste that goes to the landfill just making it. Mm -hmm. And they have some incredible stats Um, that I, of course, cannot remember, (laughs) the amount of waste that goes into just creating a product is almost equal to the amount of waste that generates after its life cycle. So we at ILFI are really looking at how do we generate buildings um, in particular where the materials that go into it and the construction practices are less harmful, but then the building itself doesn't use as much energy you know, it's net zero energy or it's net carbon, it's net zero water. Like that's what the living building challenge is.
0: Can you explain net zero for us?
1: Yeah. So net zero means that, um, let's talk about in a, in the context of a building, we're all stuck in our homes. Right. And so we're all like very conscious of all the lights that we have on all the time. Um, and so when you, and you're paying those bills, those energy bills. And so when you have a building that is net zero energy, it means that it is not, using it is producing enough energy to keep itself on rather than using additional so you have solar power you have wind power you have geothermal or you have a heat pump or whatever it is gotcha. like you are generating the enough energy on your building site to power your building so you don't have to pay those mm-hmm. bills to the energy place. Um, and so net zero water is the same thing. You capture enough water on your property to use enough, you know, to do your dishes or to flush your toilets, that kind of stuff. And um, net zero carbon is the same thing where you do not emit as much carbon as you take in. So the term net zero just means like you're producing only as much as you need to make sure that your the end production is zero.
0: How did you get into this work? I know you've had this journey from like interior design to now product (laughs) and material transparency. How did that happen?
1: Yeah, I'm from Alaska where we sort of watch climate change happen in like real time. Um, And so it's very real to me. It's something I've just been aware of as a just growing up. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to be an interior designer. I don't know why. I I just liked it. So I started my career in Alaska as an interior designer um, for a small commercial firm. And back then, those were the days when like being sustainable was like getting recycled content into your products. You know, like we were all about recycling and reducing our waste and things like that. And so I started to get interested in it that way. And then I went to grad school at University of Oregon for interior design. And when I came out, there was this thing called the Declare label. And I was really interested in it because it started to talk about material health. And that led me down many rabbit holes. The firm that I um, started working at, I was the only interior designer on staff and they, they have a lot of clients that want a sustainability story. And I started asking myself, like, what is our sustainability story as a firm? Like mm. we as clients are asking manufacturer for their sustainable stories and we like to vet them based on that. And we should do the same thing for ourselves. So I was like, what is our sustainability story? Something that we can say in like a sentence that indicates that we're taking something very seriously and that it's not just, Hmm. oh, we do some projects that have, you know, net zero or we do some project like it was a mission statement. And so I started looking at the Declare label in particular because it has a way of ranking products from good, better, best. And I started looking into like, what what is this red list thing? And so that led me to a path of really researching PVC or vinyl and how very toxic that is. So I decided I, I did a lot of research and I was like, um, we should go PVC free as a as a firm. And so we were the first in Portland to do that. And so I developed that initiative and helped sort of train staff and go through our, our materials library and clean everything out. And I will say it smelled way better after <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Yeah, interesting. And then I started working at a startup called Source, which is a materials and online materials resource and database and project tool for designers built by all former designers who like understand the struggle. So we were like building a tool for ourselves and it helps designers integrate sustainability into their design process as well as, I mean, it does many other things, but that was my focus was how can we build sustainability into the foundation of it? Because usually material databases do not include sustainability. Either they're all sustainability or they're aesthetic only. And we wanted to merge the two. And so we built the Declare label and the Declare system into that database because it was it's my favorite and i used it a lot
0: yeah let's dive into declare yeah, yeah. what is it how does it work how do designers use declare
1: so the declare label and I'll also i also talk about the living product challenge which is a newer label that they have and i'll talk about both the declare label is basically a nutrition label for materials or products and it tells a person um, a consumer or a designer what is in that product the chemicals that are in that product and it tells you if there are any red list ingredients, the red list is a list of the worst in class toxic chemicals that ILFI has developed um, with scientists.
0: So, this would be like a f- piece, you know, food having, oh, this food has a lot of trans fats.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, it will tell you, so, it'll tell you the lifespan of a product. Like how long it's supposed to last, where it was finally like the final assembly position, what you do with it after you're done with it. Like, does it go to the landfill? Can Is it compostable? Like, can you recycle it? And then it'll tell you all these chemicals that are in it. And it will highlight the ones that are sort of chemicals of concern are on the red list.
0: What would be like an example maybe of like a product or material that has like some red list ingredients?
1: Anything that has vinyl in it. is is on the red list. So when you go and you get something that says luxury vinyl tile or LVT, that has vinyl in it. And so that's on the red list. Things that have formaldehyde in it. um, So Mm. laminates have red list ingredients. And so it will highlight what those ingredients are. They have a negative effect on humans. They have a negative effect on the environment and they have a negative effect on the people that create them. So it's the full spectrum. And so the declare label will tell them, tell a consumer or a designer, again, if it has any red list items and it will grade it on three sort of levels. And so the first level is just declared. I have a manufacturer and I have declared everything that's in my product. The next is li- um, living building challenge compliant, which means that there may be something in the red list in. The but that's because there's no other way to make this product quite yet so we have a couple exceptions of well
0: because if you need to use it like you might as well use the best and that best might still have an issue yeah
1: yeah and it's like an acknowledgement that like we know you're trying and part of it is if you have to use those products in your living building challenge you have to write a letter to the manufacturer saying hey we've specified but we don't really want to please consider changing this and then the best is red list free so when designers say they're looking for a red list free product that's what they mean they're looking for a product that has a declare label and has said this product has no red list ingredients so Mm -hmm. that's how the declare label works and then we have recently launched something called the Living Product Challenge label, which sort of goes a step further. It not only tells a designer everything that's in the same, it's like a declare label, but cranked up a notch. So the Living Product Challenge will have all of those chemical ingredients and all that same information about where it was assembled, how long it will live and all that good stuff. And then it will tell a designer or a consumer like how much carbon was emitted during the production process, how much water was used how much waste was created. And so it'll it'll show you like the carbon footprint of the manufacturing process. So you can understand, you can start to say like, not only is this, is this a red list free product, but I can start to pick one that has a lower carbon footprint.
0: How do you get people to actually declare? And, you know, do you run into resistance? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, this is something that we talk about a lot. And I will say that there was a time when food was not labeled and then now it is. And I would say to manufacturers, and I do say to manufacturers that this is not an issue that designers are gonna stop caring about. And eventually this will become standard, declaring what is in your or being transparent Mm -hmm. about what is in your product and how it's made is just going to be seen as standard. And it is starting to become seen as standard. There are a lot of big tech companies, the ones we all think about that have made sustainability pledges. They require red list free products. It's still about doing the right thing. But now it really is a business case. Like, do you want to be specified in a product? You need to be transparent because designers are wanting to know. Clients are wanting to know. Another part of having a healthy building is that the people inside it are happier, they're healthier, they take less sick leave is a big one. And so employers want to create these spaces that are healthy, because it's it's good for their bottom line. And so designers are asking for them much more. When manufacturers are sort of on the fence, I always say, you know, get transparent and get trans and, and get specified, because it really is it's not going away. And this is something regulators are going to start asking about. And this is something that your consumers are going to start asking about. And if you do not have an answer and it is not measurable, you will lose capital. And so it's sort of like if you want to be in business in five to 10 years, this is something you should get ahead of because if you don't, your competitors will.
0: Yeah. yeah, And they'll sell into these. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You touched on this in a couple of different ways. I think I have a good sense of the environmental impact, but we're about to launch a... Uh, Summit on Workplace Innovation. For someone who's in a space that was made out of materials that were declared that is filled with furniture and other products that are also good, Like, what does that feel like compared to maybe a traditional space?
1: We all kind of know what it feels like to be in a space that was not made with healthy materials because we call it the new carpet smell
0: yes there it is. we call it the
1: new car smell (laughs) like we all know that smell
0: and that's not good right that's not a good thing it
1: might smell good and we might kind of secretly love it but those are very toxic chemicals that you're breathing into your body and those Mm -hmm. i should say that not only are these chemicals that accumulate in nature they accumulate in your body so we have done this is the royal we science has done a lot of Mm -hmm. studies looking at these chemicals in babies. And so it's not just if you were exposed to something as a person. We are all exposed to these materials and now our children are even before they are born. Um so being in a space that has redless free products, natural products is it feels good because these are frequently products that are very not frequently a lot of natural products are like this. What very well designed products that have declare labels and are redless free. They've gone through a vetting, a very strong vetting process to make sure that not only do they not have redless free pro- contaminants in them, but they also perform the right way. So you're not don't think that you're sacrificing like quality for, for health. They're they're still gonna hold up as you need them, but it, it will feel it does just feel better. And this is the part where it feels very woo-woo about like it feels nice. You should be in this space, but like we've all been in spaces like this that make us feel good and don't sort of irritate our sinuses. Or if you have asthma, that's another one where these chemicals can really aggravate your asthma. And so maybe you feel sneezy or you feel tired or it's something like that where it feels it feels like having a good a good meal. You know, you know sometimes you eat something and you feel really tired afterwards and your tummy kind of hurts and you're like, oh, that was the wrong choice. And um, then sometimes you have a really great meal and you're like, I feel amazing afterwards.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's oh, great. Thank you, Ren. This has been so great. I uh, really appreciate it and appreciate all the work you're doing.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Declare and the International Living Future Institute, check out their website for resources, educational events, and ways to get involved. Visit living-future.org. And, Ren, please stick around and we'll bring Lana Rarick into the conversation after a quick break. This holiday season, give the design lover in your life something truly unique. At Design Museum Everywhere, we've opened an online holiday store with several publications, including our books, bespoke bodies about the design and craft of prosthetics, and design and play. It features incredible photography and stories about play environments from around the world. We also have our Design Museum Magazine, which is our quarterly publication on design impact. We also have gift memberships, which are perfect for employees, General design enthusiasts and students or young professionals looking for resources and professional development. All membership levels include a magazine subscription. Check out the store on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org. We're back and we're joined by our special guest. Lana Rarick is an associate principal and architect at ZGF where she also focuses on material selection and transparency. Lana guides clients, design teams, and contractors through the intricacies of system materials selection, product research for locations, and writing specifications to assure that project goals are met during construction. And she leads EGF's architects' project performance teams' efforts to select and specify low-impact, healthy materials. Lana, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me.
0: As an architect, what is the designer's role in creating healthy, sustainable spaces?
2: You know, for a long time, architects weren't asking questions about what's in the materials or what are the impacts of those materials. You know, starting with lead in the kind of early 2000s, we started to scratch the surface of those issues. It was a really good starting point, but we are accelerating that big time now to really get deeper on those issues and expand the number of issues that we're looking at. I think that once you know something, you can't unknow it. I remember I I wasn't in this world. I didn't originally envision being in this world. I often joke about being in this world because I certainly didn't go to architecture school to become a specifications writer. And I didn't expect to be like kind of all in on sustainable materials issues. I I have this uh, kind of embarrassing fact that I I knew I was going to be an architect in high school. So I skipped chemistry and went straight to physics. And now I'm looking at material ingredients all the time. (laughs) And I think that's okay because as architects really depend on other experts to decipher what that information means and help us make better decisions on that information.
0: Sure. I often wonder though, so like architects, designers, I hear this a lot, like it's a, it's a service industry to folks who want to create buildings, want to create. So sometimes I hear people say like, well, it's not really my you know, choice or it's not my decision, like what materials are going to be used or what this is made out of. And I wonder if you could respond to that because my sense is architects and designers have so much power in this.
2: We do. We need to understand our responsibility and wield our power with that responsibility in mind. Yeah, I I totally agree. We can't just abdicate that responsibility. When we make decisions, even early in design, when we start looking at wood versus concrete versus steel, that's having an embodied carbon impact. When we look at the interior finishes, that's having a direct impact on the health of the people inside that space. Even though it's really hard to pinpoint that, even the really good researchers, it's really hard to pinpoint what the impacts are. You can't just throw a bunch of carcinogens in a space and expect that that has no impact at all on the people. When I was a young architect, I saw Bill McDonough speak about cradle to cradle and yeah, it just blew my mind. And he was talking about these like scary ingredients and in building products. And just, like, that's a lot of what started my journey. And I just, I couldn't unknow that information. And I think that as architects and designers and construction professionals and And building manufacturers, like once you know that you can't unknow that and then then your moral compass kicks in.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
2: Alana, I'd
1: like to ask a follow-up question to that in terms of knowing your power as an architect or specifier designer. How do you then talk to your clients about this. Mm -hmm. I know some clients come to the table really excited about sustainability, some come with no knowledge. How do you, since it sounds like the answer you have is, yes, we have a lot of power and we should harness that power as as architects. How do you then take that to your client and communicate the importance of this to, to them?
2: Architects are hired for their expertise and this is a value add that we can bring to them and bring into the conversation, just that kind of awareness building and maybe, you know, on this project, that awareness just leads to a few goals. Maybe it's just pursuing all the materials, credits, and lead or something like that. But it starts them on a the journey. I think everyone, like, you know, I talked about where my journey started in this uh, area. I think that everybody is on a journey and you just give them those little tidbits of information. We have a lot of repeat clients, so we can build on that knowledge and that responsibility on the next project there are some things that we can do without complete client buy-in i do think it's much more powerful to get client buy-in i don't want to sneak things into the specifications that i don't feel is all that useful because sometime during construction the contractor is going to be like why is this in here and the client will be like i don't know right I don't care if I get the client to a place where they're just like, "Oh, I do care." We said there was no vinyl on this project. That can't sneak through. Then they're going to stand behind it. So I think, you know, having all the players involved and invested in the conversation is really important.
0: I wonder if you could talk about your process or like where you come in to the design process and utilize certifications like Declare, how does that work then all like ensure that the final design, the final construction is gonna be a healthy space?
2: Yeah, it, it depends on the project where I come in. Those projects where the client is coming to us and saying, we want healthier materials, I come in pretty early and help them decipher what does that mean and define what it's, what does that mean for this project so that we can write it into the specifications. Other projects I've brought in to help deal with the LEED certification implications of materials choices, which can lead to those conversations as well, but is often like further along in the projects. It's certainly, our, our most ambitious projects, we have two Living mm-hmm. Building Challenge projects right now. I'm in there really early talking to them about like what does this mean? Okay, this is gonna be a different process than you're used to. There's a lot of just figuring out which parts of you know you say you want this certification which parts of that certification are the most important to you so we should pursue with the most gusto um living building challenge is a little bit different animal because it's mostly all or nothing unless you're doing pedal certification but then on the project we have one project doing living building challenge materials pedal certification and so it's everything within the materials category we had a client that was particularly interested in the red list and just like Okay, but you know, if you want the plaque on the door, we're doing all these other parts too. Whereas lead and well are a little bit more of a choose your own adventure. So you need to work through that process with the client and figure out Mm. what are those credits Mm -hmm. that they really care about going after because they align with their project goals.
0: I wonder, Lana, when it gets, when you are working with other architects and designers, does using these particular products or materials ever create barriers or constraints that they're not used to? I mean, Ren kind of touched on this and said you don't have to sacrifice utility, but I wonder if in the design phase it kind of changes designs
2: our team was very nervous <laughs> initially. They just didn't know what that yeah. meant. So my job first off was just to define a list of materials that you could use and materials that were off limits and just just mm. steer just them along. And pretty quickly, once they got an understanding of the wide variety of materials that they could use that were red list free, they got over that really quickly, that hurdle. But there was this nervousness. There's some nervousness that continues mm. through the process. We are excited when we have materials that have declare labels or even health product declarations because it's easy to verify pretty quickly if they're going to meet uh, either be uh, living Building challenge compliant or red list free and we can use them on the project and we can just bring that palette to our mm-hmm. client with confidence um, it's when they those materials don't have that information and in certain categories that was part of what I helped the team with as well is to say that's nice that you love this product it doesn't have information and in all of its competitors do. So go look that way instead and and find something else you love.
1: This is what I was talking about with the business case of like, When I talk to manufacturers, this is the the behind the scenes that they don't realize is the designers are having these conversations. If you do not have it, we will find a competitor that does because our clients are asking for it. So we will go find it. And so that's what I bring to the manufacturers is to tell them no, these are conversations that designers are having, and you want to make sure that you don't get kicked out of the room without even knowing you were there.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I would say after Kelsters and the Portland PAE Living Building Project, that every ZGFer who's involved in those projects their outlook has changed so they now know these materials are red list free and these ones aren't and i think it will you know color their knowledge and their their choices from here on out
0: that was my thing around at the educational component how do we push more and more of this knowledge of materials and into design and architecture school so that this is just the way right is that a goal to educate designers uh, up front
1: yeah, I would say that it actually happens in reverse. Kids these days are way more tuned into this already. You do not need to convince sort of the boots on the ground, the kids in design school, the kids who are in high school, you don't have to you don't have to convince the new Um, the new recruits, this is an issue because they come into it knowing that it is and they come into it with a passion for it. It's usually convincing folks who've been in the industry for a long time that this is something they should care about because there has been sort of this history of when this first started, it was like, you know, the environmentalists and the hippies, and it's very woo woo and like sustainable products are more expensive. And like sometimes that you really still have to combat that preconceived notion with higher ups. And it can be in a firm, it can be with your client. That's why we have as as designers, we have sort of these arsenal of as Lana was saying, like with different clients, different stories resonate with them. And so you pick an alley to go with them. I try to lean heavily on storytelling because people are more attracted to stories rather than just numbers. But sometimes the business case is what does it. Sometimes it's the human stories. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. just the fact that your competitor's doing it. A little FOMO sometimes goes a long way. But I find that generally speaking, it is not the kids in schools who um, need to be told that this is important. They just need to be shown the tools of how to harness their passion.
2: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I'm seeing that generational shift. I use it as a weapon, somewhat with leadership about staff retention. Like, we're going to lose those good, passionate young designers if we're not taking this issue seriously and, and addressing it in a meaningful way. And I think that generational shift is starting to affect the manufacturers and clients and the contractors as well. I think that's part of where the building momentum is coming from, is that the younger generations just get it and look up at us and say what are you doing
0: what advice for other designers who want to specify these high quality healthy responsible materials what's your advice for them on their projects
2: start somewhere (laughs) If you've already started somewhere, build on where you've started from. There's just always deeper to go. I know that uh, a long time ago when I was a sustainability director at Yes Group Hall Architecture, when I first made the pitch to become sustainability director, one of the principals at the time is just like, don't you think this job will go away in a few years? And I'm just like, well, no. And when I went to ZGF over five years ago, I made this conscious choice to hone in on sustainable materials issues. And there's just so much to know. Uh, And I don't think you can do it all at once. Um, I'm really excited because the AIA has recently adopted the AIA Materials Pledge I and a bunch of other building materials experts across the U.S. worked on under Mm -hmm. the AIA's uh, Materials Knowledge Working Group. This was looking at... What does holistically sustainable materials mean? Uh, instead of keeping up the whack-a-mole game that we've been playing with manufacturers, where like, yeah, we care about human health, and now we care about climate change, yeah, and next year we're going to care about something else. Like this, uh, the Materials Pledge was a set of aspirational statements saying that no, we care. This is the definition of an ideal material, and we care about all of these aspects of that material, knowing that it's hard for a material. There is no perfect material. But we want materials that support human health, climate health, ecosystem health, and social health inequity in a circular economy. You know, simple ask, right? It's not not at all. Um, as Ren was pointing out, like we're not even really scratching the surface yet of uh, social health inequity and the the justice issues that are related to the materials that we're choosing every day. But we need to get there. But you got to start somewhere. So start somewhere. Get on your journey. Mm-hmm.
0: That's great advice. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your expertise with us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun.
0: Listeners, to learn more about Lana's and the team at ZGF's work in architecture, design, and planning, visit them online at zgf.com. And now it's that time. Every week, we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way, I will go first. Let's see, I know we're all being inundated with new collaboration apps and online tools, but I have absolutely fallen in love with a new one or new to me called Milanote. Diana from our team here at the museum first introduced me to it and she used it for some collaboration purposes with students. And basically it's kind of like an online bulletin board where you can capture ideas, posts, images, you can comment, you can share links, you can have boards and there's boards within boards, so you can kind of keep everything organized. And so, for example, at Design Museum, uh, we've structured it so there's sort of one main shared board that has all of our projects categorized by like their type of project. And then each of those has a board that you go into that has a sort of like a dashboard for that project, like info about things we're working on, the project, links to Google Docs, links to Dropbox, and you can post PDFs. And there's like a little preview of the PDF, which I love since sometimes things just get so lost in Dropbox (laughs) and you can never find them. But there they are on Milanote. So easy. Uh, The beautiful thing about these visual boards is that there's just enough structure in like how you post things that it's not like a complete free for all. You know, Things can get really messy, but I never feel limited in what's possible. So there's just this great sweet spot. Um, so you can make something that looks good and organized very quickly um, from basically starting from nothing. Uh, but they also have lots of great like templates and all those fun things. It utilizes notes, and then there's columns. And you can kind of post the notes in the columns, or you can just post images anywhere you want. There's just a ton of super smart features. Everything's drag and drop, and that's also the magic of it. You can copy and paste anything just directly in. You don't have to like import or upload. Um, it's just like command C, command V, um, and you're done. And you can drag stuff, images, PDFs, just directly onto the board, onto the website. So good. And you can share with anyone and they can edit your board or you can lock it. So good. It's basically my virtual dream bulletin board. Uh, we're definitely using it for project management, but I've also started personally using it for like visual note-taking and storyboarding. It's it's great. Um, and there's a mobile app, which is always fun. So. Check it out and uh, start some boards for free at millinote.com Ren, you are up next.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to go for something completely different. I love it. And say that I am really excited about this group called Design as Protest. And I heard about it because I heard um, Brian Lee, who's an architect with um, Colocate, uh, do an address for AIA. And it was it was amazing. He's an amazing person. And what they're doing at Design as Protest is really wonderful and it sort of gets at that my storytelling of like who is involved in design how are we designing and how are communities affected and so I think one time a lot of the time designers feel very stuck in that they know that they should do this and they don't Mm -hmm. know how and so um, Designers Protest um, which you can go to um, DAPcollective.com to learn about it it's co-organized by BIPOC designers and it is a way to hold the profession accountable so they have demands and they have actions and they have events and stories and resources, but the demands and the actions I find extremely compelling to help guide our industry and so I really, um, I really want to give a big, a big shout out to design as protest the time for just talking about our feelings and talking about how we want to do something is needs to be over and we need to take action and we need to do it now. And so having these demands and actions that you can start integrating into your practice every day, I, f- I find just wonderful. And, and I hope we all, we all do them. Definitely head over to um, dapcollective.com, design is protest and, or co-locate and look up Brian Lee and his TED Talks because he, again, when you talk about storytelling, I find the way that he talks about the history of design and the impact of design to be extremely compelling and just really, really wonderful. So that is my my design. I
0: love it. Yeah, the work that they're doing is so cool. I mean, it's just, it's, it's real action. So yeah. that's awesome. Glad you yeah. brought them up. And thank you. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it.
1: Of course. I'm so excited to talk material transparency and talk about how we can build better and build a better future. So, yeah.
0: That's the future. Thank you. That's our show. I want to, again, thank Ren DeCharny and Lana Rarick for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to Declare and some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, be sure to pre-order our new book, Bespoke Bodies, The Design and Craft of Prosthetics. The stories and designs in this book are so good, so incredible. The limb loss and prosthetics community is amazing and we work so closely with so many of them to pull together a great book on the subject. So that's on our website and the pre-order is open. And this is the last reminder to get your tickets for the Workplace Innovation Summit happening December 7th through 11th, five days of talks, workshops, and networking, all about the future of how and where we work. And lastly, we're in December now, so we're approaching the end of the year, and I hope everyone listening will consider making a tax-deductible donation to support this podcast and support Design Museum Everywhere. Your financial support means the world to us and makes our mission possible. So help us bring the transformative power of design everywhere by making a year-end donation, visit our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on the link at the top of the page. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at designmuseumeverywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have a pretty awesome weekly email newsletter as well that you can sign up for on our website. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano. We're produced by Ryan Flom and Amore Yates with editing support from Amanda Martinez. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at the Design Museum, thanks for being here, and we'll talk again next week.